Hello, all, and welcome to the 19th episode of the Ocean Decade Show, uh, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So something I just, this isn't in my prepared notes, I just thought of this right now, is that we're almost done with the teen years of the Ocean Decade Show. We're about to hit 20, which is bananas to me. <laughs> um, that it's just something I wanted to acknowledge and think about that, wow, we're about to, we're maturing and we're growing up. And so, yeah, we're about to hit, uh, this is episode 19 and then we'll hit 20, which is just, wow, uh, crazy. So by the time this podcast airs, uh, and after a two-year delay, the UN Ocean Conference will have just wrapped up. Uh, I was able to attend the conference wearing uh, my Aspen Institute hat, my day job, uh, and was able to participate while I was there in several Ocean Decade events. Uh, It was great to finally get to meet some UN colleagues in real life who I've only ever spoken to via a computer and to make sure that they all have legs and torsos, like I assume they do, but you never know on Zoom, you know? Um, This podcast was born during the pandemic, and we're still not even close to out of the woods yet uh, with COVID-19. But this conference was kind of like a milestone to me, the fact that I got to jump into the Ocean Decade world because of the work that I continue to do with this show and the fantastic people that I get to talk to every month. Uh, It was a really heartening experience, and I'm already looking forward to the next UN Ocean Conference whenever and wherever it will be. But now to the topic of this month's podcast. I'm really excited to be covering a topic that's near and dear to my heart, uh, even though I have limited to no talent in it myself, the arts. Uh, Yeah, like I said, horrible artist myself, but I've been very interested in the intersection of arts in the decade since the launch of the decade, because we're thinking about the ocean in a brand new way, right, during these 10 years. So we need to be purposefully intersectional in how we approach the next eight and a half, nine years and on the road to 2030 overall. Uh, This can't be a topic that we start thinking about in 2025, 2026, and then realize, oh, we should have thought about this at the beginning. So I'm glad that that my guests today are already thinking about this and that we're working to integrate it into the decade overall. So there are many different ways that I've seen from my perspective that the way that the arts are being incorporated into the ocean decade, and I hope to cover many more projects that are focused on this topic. But this month's episode is all about the idea of ocean memory, which I remember still the first time that I heard that term uh, in this group, the Ocean Memory Project. I heard about it during my Canals Fellowship at NOAA in 2020 when I was working on the Ocean Decade there at the U.S. level. And my fearless supervisor, Liz Turpak, had heard about this group on a webinar and tasked me with figuring out (laughs) who who they were um, and what the heck they did. At first, I thought that I don't know, it sounded like a name of like a cool punk band almost, Um, but they're (laughs) a really amazing group doing great things. And after doing some background research, I realized that one of the leads of the project was a colleague at the Department of Energy who I had already been working on the Ocean Decade stuff with while she was wearing her DOE hat. So you truly cannot make up (laughs) these connections and the ocean world is a really, really small place. And that's what I tell everyone getting into the field, Uh, you will continue to meet people over and over again, so be nice. (laughs) So the Ocean Memory Project is a collaborative network of researchers from across the sciences, arts, humanities, dedicated to exploring the intersection of ocean and memory, and advancing ocean memory as a new field of scholarship and creative expression. I'll let my guests explain the project in more detail, but the part of the Ocean Memory Project that hits home the most for me is their focus on the stories that the ocean has to tell. Uh, OMP, 
I'm not sure if that's what their acronym is, but I'm bringing back the acronym of the month on the spot here (laughs) that we've done in previous episodes. And then it had a little bit of a lapse. Uh, But OMP is interested in tapping into humanity's quest to understand the world through stories. And it's here that they and I are in total agreement because I try to use this podcast to tell the human stories of this international initiative. So uh, their focus on stories really, really touches my heart. Uh, And as described on their website, uh, they say that through, quote, exploring ocean memory, they wish to embrace the wide diversity of stories from precisely scientific to abstractly sensorial uh, in order to generate new knowledge and paint complex yet clarifying pictures that increase our understanding of the deep rhythms of the nature that surrounds us and includes us, which is super important. As a social scientist, we are part <laughs> we are part of the ecosystems. Humans are intricately part of the ocean ecosystem, and we cannot forget that. So I'm really excited to talk to my guest today, not only about the Ocean Memory Project, but their perspective on arts during the ocean decade overall. Uh, so thank you so much, Heather and Daniel, for, for being here today. Very glad to be here. So please, uh, maybe Heather, then Daniel, uh, introduce yourself and what has been your path to the Ocean Decade? Yeah, so I'm Heather Spence. I My background is actually marine biology and music. And so my, my DOE hat, my Department of Energy hat that I wear, I actually advise on, among other things, marine bioacoustics. And so I do a lot of kind of integrating different disciplines and worlds. And for the Ocean Memory Project, I came to it and met Daniel at a really special conference that we can talk more about, um, the National Academies Keck Futures Initiative, which was really an incubator for some amazing cross-disciplinary work, including the Ocean Memory Project. That's fantastic. Daniel? Um, so I'm originally an artist, uh, mostly a painter. And I think maybe it's good to say that I, I really had very little relationship to the ocean and, and probably mostly fear of it. Although, um, like everybody, I like sitting on the beach and looking at it and listening it, but really I'm not someone who grew up next to it. Um, and through some, uh, other uh, paths. I started working in 2013 with geneticists and over the following 10 years really got to uh, work with scientists very closely and uh, think about the changes that had happened uh, in our societies uh, since the beginning of the 20th century and, and mostly changes in the world of ideas and uh, started really thinking about the role of of working across disciplines to solve uh, large problems and also to, to integrate the changes that had happened pretty much 100 years ago and that I think are still unfolding and, and changing the way in which we think of our universe. Um, and so I was really excited to be invited to NACFI. And that year it was a, uh, the, the subject was a, uh, a focus on the deep ocean, on the mesopelagic. And we were broken into different groups and uh, got to talk with, you know, maybe 10, 15 people within that group. Uh, mine was on uh, the microbiome and biodiversity, which I thought was fantastic because I think the microbiome uh, brings, is going to completely change our sense of 
who we are as individuals, because we are now thinking about how we are connected through all of these microbes and that we're no longer uh, just human genetic material. We're actually already a polyorganism. Um, and I think what was really striking in, in um, meeting um, oceanographers was that it became really clear very quickly how little we know about the ocean, paradoxically, um, and how a lot of the efforts were like, you know, kind of shining uh, a light at the bottom, you know, 6,000 feet down and seeing what you might see within the, the you know, uh, sphere of your light. Um, and it made me think of one of the things that I'm really interested in is, is negative space, which we think a lot in visual arts. And it seemed to me like the ocean was one huge negative space for humankind, that, that we are really land animals, even though we came from the ocean, and um, that, this, that the ocean in some way, all of the, the uh, things that make the ocean the ocean in some ways exclude us as, as air-breathing, land-walking animals. And so I was really, that was the beginning of my kind of fascination with working with oceanographers and thinking about the ocean. That's fantastic, Daniel. And just to go back to a very small point, the fact that you said you started working on something in 2013, and then you said 10 years ago, and that was slightly a knife to the chest, because 2013 seems like it was five minutes ago. Um, and it's just cool that I don't think a lot of painters would like to talk to, <laughs> to my, about microbiomes and uh, things. So it's just fascinating the combination of people who work on this project and uh, who really met at this uh, conference that, that you referenced. So Heather, can you let us know a little bit more about uh, how you all got together and what that conference, that acronym that Daniel uh, referenced is and uh, the origins of the Ocean Memory Project? Yeah, so it's really interesting. The National Academy's Keck Futures Initiative was basically an experiment, like a 15-year experiment. And it was really looking at what happens when you bring people from different disciplines together in a conference and then with a, with a and this is not your ordinary conference. Um, it, it evolved over those years um, as an iterative process, but but we're really we're not talking about your typical. You know, you go there, you have your like fifteen minute talks and your sessions, and maybe your you know uh, panels and whatnot. This was really very fluid, organic, shoot, chart your own adventure kind of a kind of a a gathering, and. So the, the conference that where Ocean Memory was born was towards the end of this experiment. And it, I think it was just the previous year they, were, they started inviting not just scientists from different disciplines, but people from the humanities and the arts as well. And so in this year, it was uh, the, I think the theme was called the Deep Blue Sea it was quite a variety of people. And sure, there were ocean people, but there were all kinds of people at this conference. And the things that emerged out of conversations and the different perspectives that people had were really very exciting. And it was interesting because, and, and Daniel can talk more about the specific origin of the ocean memory concept, which is pretty cool. Um, I will say that uh, I actually wasn't in 
technically in the room. You weren't in the, in the room where it happened? That was talking about. I wasn't in the room where it happened, but I was in a different room where we we're having a different conversation. And we actually created a project that um, one of the nice things about the the NACV, we call it NACV, the National Cannabis Tech Futures Initiative, uh, was that after these gatherings, these conferences, there were grants that were available to the attendees of the conference so that, you know, you go to a conference and that you're like, so oh, rare. well, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, you're like, oh, well, you know, that was fun. Um, you know, we, we, we had, we had, we had a nice time, but then nothing really comes of it. In this case, it was amazing because you could take those, those amazing ideas that came out of that conference and you could actually do them. And so the group that I was in, we had um, among us, a variety of people including an oceanographer who also did photography um, and also a playwright. And we actually created a project where we were uh, called the um, Immersive Mesopelagic Performance Lab. And so we actually did a, a performance, an immersive performance where people could come in and sensorially experience the mesopelagic. So that was the room I was in. But at this conference, I met Daniel and I found out I, I was torn because I, I was really like interested in the ocean memory thing, but I also want to do this theater thing. But Daniel and I got to talking and I got really excited about the ocean memory concept and the really cool ideas that were coming out of that. So I think, I think Daniel, you should talk about that, that the birth, that moment of, of, of ocean memory. So, so first to say something else about NACV, um, it's not only that there's possible potential funding at the end, but that, the task at the beginning is to talk to people who you normally wouldn't be talking to, uh, who you might have a hard time understanding, um, and come up with sort of unfundable concepts. So there, there, there was a specific ask that 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 you know there's a regular funding stream for science. And then there are things that don't get funded because they're a little too far out. And we were specifically asked to just think about in that space and then to come up with ideas, to present them to the group, to gather sort of people chose which idea they wanted to work with. And then we had a day and a half to sort of present, to make a presentation um, of the idea to the, to, the, to the complete group. And then we had two months to go back and uh, make projects that, could be funded. Um, and so it was really interesting to be told from the start that we had a license to, to go as far out as we wanted um, and that that would be welcome. And that, that's quite unusual, especially coming from, you know, in this case, the National Academies of Science, Medicine and Engineering. It's not, you don't expect initially as an artist that that's going to be the place where you're given license to kind of dream, right? Um, so that was, that was the beginning, uh, the, the setting. And then we met, uh, I think there were maybe 15 people in our group. As I said, it was, uh, there were there, each group had, you, you got to choose, um, which group you wanted to be in originally. There were five different groups and the one I chose was microbiome and biodiversity. And so, you know, you meet and everybody, you know, sit in a big circle and you introduce yourselves and start to just have a free range discussion. And then after lunch, you know, the, there were two, uh, two sort of national academies guides and they come back and they say, you know, we were told that, that 
we should start coming up with ideas because time's, <laughs> time's running out. And we'd been talking about all sorts of things, um, thinking about exchanges in the ocean as currency, sort of literally currency. What are the things, what is the information or the value that's being exchanged between organisms or systems? Um, we'd been thinking about, obviously, I asked about the negative space. You know, what what don't we know? How do we... How do we get to start to understand what we don't know? So there were there were all sorts of ideas that were that were floating around. So we, we basically took I think fifteen minutes to write uh, ideas, and and one of the ideas that came out right at the end was does the ocean have memory and what form does it take? And so after that we kind of uh, continued the discussion and and pretty soon kind of focused that that was the idea we wanted to work on and. We got to present it the next morning, and a bunch of people uh, joined the joined the the project, or joined the presentation, or joined the the thinking through the ideas. And I think what was what's what was attractive from the start was that we were putting together terms that don't normally coexist. You know, we normally think of memory as something profoundly human, maybe. Other higher organisms have it, but we don't usually think of uh, other organisms having it. And we think of it as, as sort of the, part of the source of our identity. And then we think of the ocean as, as, I think, usually as something vast and part of the natural world. And we, we think of the natural world as a place of laws, pretty much, especially if we're scientists. Um, and so to put those two together really creates a kind of cognitive dissonance in which in which uh, meaning can start to expand, sort of like the Big Bang, you know? It's like engulfs into into there. And because it was a, a transdisciplinary conference, although we didn't really use that term then, it was more interdisciplinary. Um, but I prefer transdisciplinary for lots of reasons. Um, and um, because it was an interdisciplinary uh, workshop, the meanings that we could put in could be in any direction. So it didn't have to be a science meaning. Uh, it didn't have to be an artistic meaning, but it could be, it could be a, you know, human interest meaning. It could be all sorts of different things or all of those together. And so uh, it really allowed us from the beginning to think of the, those terms, not in a restrictive way, not that we had to define them, but that we had, we could let them kind of open up and echo um, and, build all of these resonances. And so that's kind of what we've been doing over the past four years is, is um, expanding the, the echo chamber and inviting people in uh, who have unique points of view uh, to, to bring those points of view to the question. And I, I think that's, that's been our, our main modality is bringing people together to think. Um, and with the, with the assumption at the start that, the more points of view you have on an, on something, the better you get to know it, and uh, that in the current world, that's that's essential. And so, in, in order to do that, you also need to learn uh, to hear other people and to talk to them, which is often really not easy. <laughs> no, definitely not, especially in our virtual world and time differences and all sorts of crazy things like that. But I just want to like stop for a second and think about the amazing innovation of this kind of conference where you all met and this sort of 
interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary thinking, because they are very different things. I could do a whole <laughs> podcast on the difference between those two um, in the ocean decade space, but this kind of space for creativity and innovation uh, is what I think the ocean decade is trying to encapsulate over the course of these 10 years. And you all had it in a microcosm even before the decade existed. Uh, and it allowed you to, you know, I, I can just kind of almost picture the mind blowing, at least it would blow my mind if someone talked to me about the idea of ocean memory. It's like, well, if the ocean has a memory, like what else is there? <laughs> like, what if I start thinking in three dimensions versus two dimensions? You know, it's like you're a kid and you get <laughs> like a, a glasses prescription. And you're like, wow, I can see the world now. It just opens your mind up, I think, to to totally different things. So uh, Heather, maybe a question for you. Why is focusing on, you know, the memory of the ocean so important to the future of the ocean? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I will get to that, but I wanted, I want to touch on what you just said about how important it is to bring in these concepts to the decade. I, I think we, we can, we can talk about what ocean memory is and, and why memory is important. I just want to really emphasize though, too, the process that goes into these conversations and bringing people in at the process stage. And so often there's, there's a situation where you have a, a product from, you know, a scientific endeavor, and then that is then handed off to an artist who then interprets that result and produces their own product. And the cool thing about the ocean memory mashup, the, the really exciting way that it was conceived with people coming together and creating these ideas together. And then all of the things that have come after that, we've been developing methodologies for the, for this mashup of process rather than just products. This would be really great to bring into the decade. Yeah. Note UN. <laughs> Can I jump in on, on that? Yes, please, Daniel. Um, so I think I'm really glad you brought that up early, Heather, because it's, I think, so for the past 10 years, definitely, probably probably the past 20, people have been talking about collaboration across disciplines a lot. And the problem is that we really don't know how to do it. It's really hard to do. And the do. system isn't set up to do it. The system isn't set up to do it. We speak different languages, literally. So a, a biochemist and a, and a um, uh, a medical doctor don't speak the same language, right? It's clo they're, they're close fields, but they already speak different languages. Then you bring in a physicist, that's a completely different world. Then you bring in a historian of science, forget it. And then you bring in, you know, a storyteller or an artist, and they're coming from a completely different kind of knowledge framework. So it's really hard to do. So, so part of, part of, inventing collaboration is, is developing methodologies to do it. And that at the very, at the very beginning, because of where we were born, that was part of our, our um, intention. And maybe this brings to the second part is that it's both a research project in the science and artistic sense. People often don't think of artists as researchers, but I think that's something that's really important to defend and maybe explain. Um, but it's also a community project. And from the beginning, the idea was to develop a community of people who were interested in speaking together and who would uh, grow that process, kind of develop new ways of doing it and 
kind of develop a space in which it's okay to not know, it's okay to ask stupid questions, and it's okay to bring your sometimes non-specialist but specific uh, point of view to any problem. And we know from, you know, from the past, you know, 10 years definitely of, of development on the internet that ideas, revolutionary ideas that really are transformative sometimes come from the strangest places and often really not in the academy, but from from people who have been self-taught or from people who come from uh, underprivileged situations or who don't usually have access to uh, the the uh, the regular uh, outlet of, of knowledge. And so I think we're really trying to, to both recruit and make space for uh, people to come up with uh, specific answers uh, to these questions without thinking that it's the only answer. They're just these collaboratory answers. So I think that's just the other side of it. And that's also something that would be, um, I think, useful both to bring to the decade and also for us to get from the decade in the sense of, of um, you know, there are lots of collaboratory and community practices and ours is one. And it'd be really interesting to um, have the decade be a kind of uh, fertilizer for these different ways of, of collaborating to meet. Yeah. Catalyst almost. Um, you guys are flipping the idea of, what process is on its head, I think, through what you're doing. Um, and so what does, and I realize that we didn't answer the first question because we've gone down this really cool rabbit hole, but what does the Ocean Memory Project process look like? Like, how do you all work in this space? Yeah, and I can actually tie those two questions t- together. I love it. So, because I, I hesitate to say specifically, like, why ocean memory or like why memory and why these things like I could give you my personal perspective. One of the things I love about this project is that it is community. So any person you ask in this community, and by the way, this is an open community. So people want to join the community and like join this like creative, great bunch of people doing a whole variety of really cool things. Like, please, you are more than welcome. I will give you space at the end that we can, yeah, figure out. I always want to make sure people know how to get yeah, involved. So we'll, yes. we'll make sure to do that. So, so, but every, every person in the community is going to have a different definition or idea about what ocean memory is and why it's important. And so one of the things that we do in our process is that we allow that, right? We're not saying, hey, everybody has to agree to like, this is the one main focus that we are doing we are very open to different interpretations and perspectives and what people want to get out of the experience. And so we draw from some of the lessons learned from the NACV conferences and grants process. And so we've kind of created our version of that. We have gatherings and we have grants that we give out and we have we have developed and are still developing methodology to really promote this kind of transdisciplinary engagement so that all the voices can really contribute and so that we're really working together and creating interesting, potentially transformative ideas and projects. That's fantastic. So let's go over what some of these 
projects are? What are some of the what are some examples of what OMP is doing in this space? So maybe first um, to just go back to like the kinds of questions we've had for our gathering. So we had we had a series of grants that we that we got at the beginning, and uh, one of them was really just to say, well, does ocean memory exist? Right. Let's let's gather people together and and try and understand whether this is a valid question and then where to go with it. And so we had, we had um, over, I think, two years, we had three gatherings um, where it was really like it pretty, pretty soon at the beginning, it was like, yes, ocean memory <laughs> exists and it exists in these different ways, which we can, I'm sure we'll go into. Um, and then in the second round, we, we wanted to work at a larger scope and start to try and map out what are the directions in which we can think about ocean memory? And so we, we developed a project, uh, a proposal for a four year project in which we're pretty much halfway in which we'd have a series of, of gatherings around different themes. And so the first one was thinking about ocean memory with uh, cognition and genomics. So both in like the short time scale of thought and the long time scale of the genetic uh, record. Uh, or genetic processes. Uh, the second one we wanted, and we, we did this recently, uh, was about sensing. So how can we think about memory, but through the senses and sense perceptions, not just of humans, but of ocean organisms, of ocean systems. Um, and maybe it's important to say that quite early, what what appeared was that to us was that memory isn't necessarily history, it's something more. It's not just the accrual of information, but it's the use of that information to predict future outcomes or to influence them. So organisms do this a lot. Um, they learn, for example, that, that the sun rises on this re fairly regular calendar and they go down in the water column and come up in the water column to match that. So they've, they've learned that this is happening and they're modifying their behavior to adapt to it. Um, and so we wanted to think about how, what does the sensory picture look like for that? Um, and then uh, we have an upcoming one, which is going to be this fall, which is about um, what I, I call dementia uh, and memory. And so thinking about dementia and pollution. So thinking about interruptions of memory, of madness, and pollution, and those things can be sort of thought together in different ways. Again, fairly early, we, we realized that if you talk about memory, you have to talk about forgetting. And forgetting is not necessarily the opposite of memory. In fact, forgetting memory is, is a selection process. And in order to select, you have to let go of information. So there's a forgetting, remembering dyad that's kind of generative and not oppositional. Um, but there's also loss of memory, which is a different thing than, than the initial kind of sorting process. And we really want to think about how um, pollution in the ocean and changes in the ocean on a fairly rapid timescale uh, are creating uh, situations where the ocean as a whole or its subparts cannot retain information. And so there's an interesting Example, one of the only places in oceanography where people talked about ocean memory was in physical oceanography, where they talked about 
you know, parts of water, particles of water retaining information, having a memory of previous conditions. And so one of these memory cycles is of climate change. So of changes in, in, in the Earth's temperature that gets encoded, so to speak, in the ocean, in, in ocean temperature. And those, 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 this, those tempered waters travel through the currents and on a very long time scale. And as our planet, planet is warming, we're going to be losing information. And so you can, you can, you know, you could, there's at any point you can lose information. It's not like information is held forever, but it, the cycle uh, can be interrupted, accelerated. And so we're interested in how pollution uh, participates in that. And then the last one will be sort of like, how do we uh, gather all this information and, and understand uh, how it connects? And then beyond that, we're really trying to think about how does a community of researchers from across disciplines and across cultures continue to exist and continue to talk beyond uh, a grant framework? Like, how do we actually um, grow? Uh, right now, we're, we're really a, a small collective. And how do we start to grow and become, you know, a mode of operation, a mode of, of connecting uh, in the larger community? Yeah, I think that that's so fascinating to get to see the phases that you're going through and the idea of, you know, I didn't even think about this until you said it, the idea that you have memory and then you have forgetting, which isn't necessarily the opposite. And just all these concepts are kind of blowing my own memory and mind right now. Um, and this is why I love doing this podcast is getting to chat with really smart people about topics that I know nothing about and that other people don't know anything about and can can learn and understand how we can do processes different ways. Uh, and I think in the sciences, especially you do your grant and you do things over the course of three, five, 10, however long your grant is 10 years, people would die for a 10 year grant in the sciences. Um, but an example from my, you know, kind of personal life is I did uh, graduate work on oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. And I still get emails from, <laughs> from the principal investigators in that, from that work who are trying to publish papers now on work that we did then, but can't get anyone. Everyone's moved on. They've done different projects. They're doing different things. And uh, the, there's no memory, it seems connecting us back to our past and helping us learn. And so I think that's something that the ocean decade really needs to, take to heart and learn how to how to remember better and how to incorporate that into all the ways that we we do things and to start doing that you know right now that like I said when this airs the UN Ocean Conference will already have happened and so I hope that by the time I do the 20th episode in August I can talk a little bit more about it and hopefully see some of these pieces incorporated in there but if not then we have more work to do over the next you know, few years of the decade. Yeah. You know, there's a real opportunity here with the decade to do something transformational. And I've heard that word, you know, said by a number of people about the decade. And, you know, we could use the decade as just a way of, to kind of describe the work that's already in the pipeline and pat ourselves on the back. But I would really like to see the decade as a chance to enhance the way that we are 
approaching the ocean and our understanding of it and our interactions with it. So to me, using some of these lessons learned and techniques that we've developed through the Ocean Memory Project could be a way to help us do something that's actually transformational because we're, as you say, we're already pretty far along in the decade. And so we need to do something pretty radical fairly quickly. And one of the ways to do that is to really bring in some truly different perspectives and do it in a format where there can actually be exchange of ideas and coming to a common excitement about a direction to pursue. Yeah, I'm such a process nerd that this is like, it's it's beyond what I thought we would chat about today. And that's the best part about it. Um, and so we've talked about, we were just talking a little bit about how the process of the decade can kind of shift and better be integrated these, you know, a more transdisciplinary way of doing things and at earlier stages. Um, but I want to talk to you both as kind of artists that Daniel, uh, with, with your painting and then Heather is a fantastic musician. And I assume that she does everything else as well, that she's just a one woman, fabulous band of all artistic creativity and one, one human soul. Um, but how during the decade can we better integrate the arts? So I know process is part of it. Um, but how do you think that arts can better be, uh, integrated into the ocean world? I'm not ready to move to that question yet because there's too many things that were brought up that I'd like to respond to first. Um, so I think there, so the question of process is really important. It's not any process. Uh, you know, some processes are more conducive to multi or what I call polyphonic uh, dialogue than others. What is polyphonic dialogue? Well, so polyphonic is just means like multiple voices, right? And so it's used in music to to say something that has that has lots of different voices in it. Yeah, I have to jump in on the polyphonic thing because like one of my hats is I do early music. Um, and I think it's a really great reference because if you think about like Renaissance polyphony, one of the things that's cool about it is that every line works together, but every line is important. So it's not like you have melody and then the backup harmony. Every line is its own like solo and then they work together. So, okay, go on, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. Thank No, thank you, Heather. That's, that's great to actually have that as part of the, you know, as part of the image because the images are grounded in, in, in experience. Um, they're not just neutral things. And so if you, and so here is what's fun when you're not part of something is that you can, you can kind of lay into it, right? So I'm not a scientist. I really appreciate science. I, I've read science all my life. Uh, I think it's a you know vital way of understanding the world. And of course, it's not the only one. And um, one of the things that that uh, is difficult, not just in science, but in the academy generally, when you go to a conference, is that it's a series of um, talks that that put the audience in a passive situation, right? So you have whoever the speaker is, the speaker is on the podium and the audience listens, and then there might be time left for questions. And if they're questions, they have to be addressed to the speaker, sort of um, address the topic of the speaker. And, and half the time they're not questions, they're their own statements that <laughs> people try to get in. Sure, uh, but so, 
what I found when I've been to conferences, because I'm not part of the academy, so I'm always kind of on the sideline, um, is that there's so many people in the room whose intelligence is not tapped, right? So you have one speaker and you have 40 people or 50, or if it's a plenary, you know, you might have 500 or a thousand people in the room. And all those people are just, not just, but they're passive listeners, right? And so how do you create situations where all of the people in the room are active participants in the dialogue? And so at the basis of what we've tried to do or how we've tried to uh, instantiate these ideas is that we privilege uh, the fact of everybody at a workshop speaking at the beginning and speaking for a short amount of time and then privileging the discussion space. And so we, ha- we usually have a couple of introductions that, that frame uh, the workshop. It might be some information, it might be topical. And then we usually ask everybody to have prepared a two minute, uh, what we call a lightning talk, where they present an idea, right? So, so that means both when you, when you present an idea, it means you're also presenting wh- why you're asking that question. Um, and so what it creates is that everybody there is kind of on their toes because they are, they are participants. They're not there sitting back in their seats and listening. And so you then have very, very active and engaged uh, participants and very active and engaged discussions, and they go in very active and engaged directions. So we're, we're all, we're, we're, everybody is at the table and everybody has a stake. And so I think that's something uh, that you can take in lots of different directions and in lots of different situations. How do you um, acknowledge that there are hierarchies? Because it's if you don't acknowledge them, they're there silently, which often they are. Um, but then also create modalities so that anybody who's present can speak and be heard, which is really you know two different things. <laughs> often we let people speak, but we don't listen or we don't we don't hear them. So I think that. That's something that I don't know to what degree the decade is always already putting in place these kinds of things, but I think that's to create more and more um, forum spaces where we can think together rather than just present. Yeah. And that's so, I'm trying to think about, you know, I, I love the concept of everyone at the table and everyone contributing. Then you have to think about how, how does the decade do that? You know, what's the right process? Is it at the global level? Whereas that's impossible. <laughs> it's like we already have the UN uh, you know, General Assembly, and that is madness. And so is it with all the, the individual funded work of the decade, like that they should, I, I remember thinking about this when I was at NOAA, is that there should be, you know, requirements for not funded, because the decade doesn't do funding, but for endorsed programs, like they have to hit certain things. So it's a way that we could kind of force creativity is through this or force, you know, a certain way of looking at the world as we could say, okay, you have to have this many different people from across different disciplines on whatever your activity is or your program is in order to get the official decade stamp, stuff like that, like that very basic level, what counts as part of the ocean decade and what doesn't can be really a a, a crucial process piece to help push us forward. So that's one of the things that when I'm, uh, when I'm in Portugal, when I was in Portugal, I'm now speaking <laughs> both in the, the future and past tense. Uh, I will talk about that with uh, some of my UN colleagues because that's a fascinating uh, 
fascinating concept. Um, Heather, I know we're very far off from where we were, but anything to say to that or what Daniel had said? Yeah, I think I think that this is a really important point about uh, convening and including people in a way where everyone has a real seat at the table. And so, you know, when you're talking about things like, you know, uh, you know, making sure that say uh, uh, endorsed programs have people from particular disciplines, I think that there also needs to be, you know, that co- that could be fine, but I also, you know, it, it, it raises up the question for me too, is that it's very important to make sure that people are welcomed and feel welcomed and and have a true voice because just having somebody be there doesn't necessarily mean that their perspective is included. And so that's, that's one of the things that we think a lot about in the way that we design our gatherings. Um, and we, you know, we've been kind of experimenting with things. And so we have a lot of lessons learned from that. Where we're like, Oh, well, okay, that kind of worked, but here's how we're going to do it better next time. And, and I think it would be great to have a conversation about how do we have some convenings with some key strategic people who are working on different decade programs and see if we can have a really integrated discussion with people from actually different disciplines and seeing what what could we do here. Yeah, and I remember during the, sorry, Daniel, I'll, I'll say this and then go, go to what you were saying that um, during the first year of the decade and still even now, the virtualness of it was both a hindrance and a benefit, I think, because it allowed many, many more people to listen into these talks and to different things than they would have then could go to Paris, you know, to listen or could go or who are going to go to Lisbon um, in a few weeks slash having had just happened. Um, But that is, you know, the virtualness is one of the ways, but it's not the only way. Um, Daniel, love to hear what you have to think. Um, So I just wanted to, to one of the things that's really important is scale. And, um, when I was growing up, my father was reading Small is Beautiful by Schumacher. And, and just that idea uh, that small is beautiful, like, like, and that small steps lead to uh, very long journeys. And in order for, for people to be heard at a table, the table kind of has to be small, right? I mean, we've, we've all had dinners with like 20 people and you basically can't have a large conversation it, it, it invariably breaks down into these micro conversations so you can you can work at a small scale and then you can iterate um, and work kind of nodally so that so that you have lots of small discussions that then start to gather and and you repeat and you experiment and you you kind of cycle um, and and what's surprising you know it's like you convince one person at a time you know that that's that's an important scale to work out and that actually builds to a larger thing. And I think it's, I mean, I think there are people who are, who are brilliant at, at thinking at very large scales. Um, my, my inclination has always been, I think as a, as a, someone with a studio practice and, and a manual practice is, is I kind of think of what I can do with my hands. Um, and so I've always been kind of mind boggled by like, how many cars are out there and how many people live in the city and this, this kind of multiplication of things, but you can start to do things just at, you know, three people, five people, 10 people, 15 people starts to be the outer limit of having an actual discussion, but on zoom, it's really possible. Um, And I agree that that's open spaces and it's also closed the space of presence, which I think is a really important other, um, 
component is to find ways to both to allow presence, right, co-presence, and so that can is possible in a virtual format, um, but it's sometimes it, it's definitely easier in a in a in a format where you are co-present physically. Um, but I think it's it's an important thing to think about because um, presence for each other and presence to list. I think I always come back to listening. You know that it's fine to speak, but if you can listen, you're really at the beginning of something. That's my favorite part about this podcast is I get to, you know, have some prompting questions, but then get to listen for an hour to everyone who talks about fascinating things. And people always ask me, they're like, oh, do you listen to your podcast when they come out? It's like, no, I was there. Like, I I remember how it went. I listened to it once and I do not need to hear my voice because I just can't. I can't. Um, Heather, anything else to add on this? Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking about this. You know, I don't think that everyone who's involved in the decade would need to be involved in the integrative process stages of things. It may not be everybody's cup of tea. And like, that's that's okay. We're all engaged in ways in different, you know, we all have our ways that we get engaged and, that, and that's fine. Um, I wouldn't feel like we need to like force people to, you know, come to the like the squishy ocean memory way of doing things, right? Um, but you know, some people need to be involved in the process stage. Some people, people might be like, okay, you do your like weird stuff, and then and like tell me when you figured it out, and then they'll be like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Um, so, so I think you know, I think thinking strategically about, as Daniel says, small gatherings with people who really want to be there, and having a variety of kind of a good variety of perspectives to create the right dynamic. And I also will say that I think it's also important to have people who have a foot in a couple of different worlds who can kind of help as translators. Who wear all the hats. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that, that kind of helps because sometimes things can get stuck because there's some like misunderstanding happening about like the culture of how things are going or like a word that's used. And sometimes people who have that kind of, you know, a foot in, in different places can can help to unstick things. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I don't, when I think about myself, I don't think about myself as like, oh, I'm a marine biologist, like, and I'm also like a musician composer. Like for me, I think about things integratively, but because I have these different facets and like ocean acoustics and various things like that are inherently uh, interdisciplinary, so then I think about these things like how do we use our, you know, how do different um, disciplinary cultures view each other or how can they intersect productively? And and so that's, you know, I, I, I live in that space a lot. And um, so I think I think this this integration can can happen successfully, but it does require a bit of of, of planning the dynamics. Yeah, the, it's it's all about, you know, <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about memory and art and we're talking about the importance of process in the decade and you have to go with the flow sometimes and then you have to kind of push things forward and make sure the right people are in the room. And that's exactly what this conversation has been to me is that the right three people have been in the virtual room to help us think uh, about these topics. Daniel, do you have one other thing to say before I start bringing us to some of our wrap up questions? So first, I wanted to just give a couple of examples of, of what ocean memory can be. 
And so they're both they're both examples in science, but maybe Heather can come up with other examples. Um, so we had a lot of, of uh, obviously oceanographers and in our group, we still do. And um, there's a lot of a lot of them study the deep ocean and a lot of them study the deep ocean around hydrothermal vents because there's lots of stuff happening there. And one of the concepts that that came out around the ocean around deep uh, hydrothermal vents was uh, that so there are a bunch of organisms that um, are well adapted to any one of these vents. And the vent has a particular kind of uh, chemical output, temperature, uh, pressure, etc. And we used to think that there were only a limited amount of organisms that were present, those that were best adapted. It turns out with, with now that we have better uh, genetic testing and um, you know, environmental uh, genomic tools that yes, there's a large proportion of these organisms that are well adapted, but then there's also organisms that are progressively less and less adapted, but that are always present. And it creates a kind of, you know, uh, graph with a, with a peak where there's a few organisms that are very present and then less and less and less. And you have a very long tail of organisms that are uh, really not very well adapted, but that are present anyway. And what's really interesting is that those organisms are kind of a memory of other, other uh, situations, of other, uh, of other configurations of what a, a hydrothermal vent could be. And if, if the vent changes for any reason, you know, plate tectonics, um, you know, the vent might get clogged or whatever, I, I, I have to... Uh, go to my colleagues for some of the specific examples, but um, one of these very rare organisms might become the dominant one. And if the rare organism wasn't there, there would be no one. And so they call this the rare biosphere. There's there's this memory that's that's kept in the biosphere uh, that's there, that's latent, and that can be reactivated uh, if the situation uh, is appropriate. So that's one of them. And the other one is, is more from, from general, um, you know, microbiology is that, that we, uh, as humans, um, transfer our genetic information in a linear way, uh, down the generations, but, uh, bacteria and, and, uh, other microbes do this thing called lateral gene transfer. And so they can actually share genes. And, and acquire genes in their lifetime and in, integrate them into their into their genome. And so, if you have a species, they have what's called uh, they have a core genome, which is uh, say um, this the E. coli in this environment has about a you know a thousand genes, um, and it's probably I don't know how many uh, genes E. coli actually has, um, but so they'll have a core genome, and then the species as a whole, the larger uh, species will have what's called a pan genome, which is a shared genome that can be passed back and forth. And that again is, uh, represents adaptations to specific different environments. And the fact that that pan genome exists allows the organisms to, to evolve and adapt very rapidly to changing conditions. So I, I when I learned of these two things, I was like totally blown away. Um, 
And thinking about ocean memory allows you to think about these processes rather than sort of, oh, here there's one cell or here there's one organism. It really starts, you really start to think about the ecosystem in a much more integrated way. Um, so those are just two examples. And then I wanted to just touch briefly on, on the role of art and maybe not examples of art, but more um, that artists are taught to see the world in particular ways, um, often to think deeply. Um, but when we, when we think of artists, uh, we often think about create, creativity. I think it's actually much more about research. And, and in some ways, it's very similar to science. You could say both, both arts, arts and scientists, science um, observe the world from a point of view and try and describe it to the best of their ability with the tools of their tradition. Um, and so those traditions have different rules, but, but the stance is very similar. And so, but when you have different rules, you can also reach across the aisle and ask a question that your uh, neighbor discipline doesn't know how to ask, like, what if the ocean had memory? Um, and so I think uh, not just by having art present, but by having different disciplines and different cultures with different sets of rules and different ways of seeing the world, we kind of create this interchange where, where people can ask questions differently within their own space. So if I speak to a scientist and learn about the pangenome or about the rare biosphere, it explodes my artistic world. You know, it, it really changes the way ultimately that I think about my practice, that I think about the things I make, um, et cetera. So I think that's, that's kind of what we're looking for. And I think art is just one modality or one way of asking questions that can intersect with these other ones. And those f fantastic examples, you know, to really, it is a very, you know, squishy, t I think, to use the word that Heather used, uh, concept. And so for people like me who are a little less squishy, providing some, you know, examples always helps, you know, get <laughs> get my brain moving. Um, Heather, anything else to add there? Um, I can I can provide a, a kind of artistic, scientific mashup perspective, thinking about, you know, how ocean memory is transforming the way that I think about my research practices. So I think one of the things about ocean memory is that it really entices me to think about time. And I think a lot about the concept of sampling. So sampling in research, thinking about marine biology, is you kind of are examining some small area or moment in time, and then you're kind of extrapolating and thinking about something bigger and thinking about what do we really know about that? That gets you thinking about like selective memory or, you know, the individual perspectives that can be had and then how collectively that comes together. And so, you know, and I think about like duty cycles and how, um, you know, uh, limits on energy and battery power, you know, limit our ability to um, record continuously or record across greater geographic areas or over long time periods. And so really thinking about this concept of time and I bring together my marine biology, music composing selves and kind of play, I, I record sounds in the ocean, but I, and, and I 
kind of jam with them and invite others to do so and have this kind of iterative, exploratory science and artistic process in examining the ocean soundscape. And ocean memory is a way that kind of opens me to think about different aspects of the temporal um, patterns in, in these in these soundscapes. I love that jamming, <laughs> jamming with the ocean. That's just such a, a perfect way to describe what that is. Um, so as we're moving to wrap up here, I, we've kind of touched on this, I think, throughout uh, our time together. But for, for both of you, what would constitute a successful, quote unquote, ocean decade? You know, something to do with ocean memory, with the arts, with the process. Uh, Daniel, then Heather. Um, well, before any workshop, I, I, we think a lot about what's going to happen during the workshop. But what's really important is, is what happens after the workshop? What happens when we leave the workshop? Um, and so I think, you know, focusing for 10 years on the ocean, that's fantastic. But what happens afterwards? How do we, how do we use this as a catalyst to, you know, transform um, the way in which we think, see, and engage with the ocean? So, so um you know, for me, it's been kind of, you know, as a non, non-ocean non person, it's been transformative to be in this project. It's it's transformative to start to in- engage with uh, people from across, across ocean science and ocean humanities. Um, and so I really, um, I mean, I think there's an opportunity now, given uh, the importance of the ocean to our planet and to humanity's survival, um, the planet is mostly ocean. The yeah. planet is mostly ocean, and and um, and it's and it's essential to so many of the cycles that allow uh, life on this planet to exist. So clearly, we can't just spend ten years looking at it. it has to be really uh, to to change the the blind spot most of us has, have had as land animals uh, for this this vast space and to. Um, learn to think about it much more deeply and be with it much more deeply and, and um, start to think about how we can be part of its solutions. Um, yeah. I think a lot, I mean, when you were talking earlier about stories and human stories, I think one of the things is, it's the non or the more than human stories that we need to learn to hear. So I think that's one of the focuses also about ocean memory is, is, through our imagination and through our embrace uh, of knowledge and of, of the world um, to start to to hear the non or more than human stories and what they have to tell us. I love that. Heather? I agree with everything that Daniel said. I think that the a successful ocean decade would have created a really integrated and inclusive community to carry on the work beyond the decade. And I think it really comes down to the people who are going to be working on this together and learning how to work together and acting, having there be mechanisms so that people can act on their mutual discoveries and have a path forward 
so that they can continue to explore these discoveries. So much like we had at the NACFI conferences where there were opportunities afterwards to pursue these ideas further, um, the way that we are also carrying this concept forward with the Ocean Memory Project, I think that creating, fostering community and also creating mechanisms for people to do things that are a little bit risky or weird or involving multiple disciplines, allowing there to be new metrics for success that are not residing in solely one discipline. These are all things that we need to establish a healthy, thriving community to carry on the work during the decade and beyond. Yeah, those are both fantastic answers. And I, I love where this this episode is gone. Uh, so thank you both so much for, for being here with me today and for sharing the Ocean Memory Project with all of us and your perspectives and your, your vision for, you know, the next eight and a half, nine years. Um, so where can people go to learn more about your work and potentially get involved? Um, so we, we do have a website. It's, it's constantly evolving and sometimes not fast enough. So it's uh, oceanmemoryproject.com. Uh, and we have an email uh, by which you can uh, reach us, which is oceanmemoryproject at gmail.com. Um, and then there's also social media that, that maybe Heather can give the links to. Yeah, so we are on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can, if you search for the Ocean Memory Project on either one, you should find us. And we would love for you to connect with us on any of these platforms. And if you're interested, um, come check out our community and possibly join in the conversations. Um, yeah, and, and I think in, in circling back to your question about the decade, and I think what's important for us is to connect people when they're present and then allow them to or facilitate them connecting beyond when they're co-present and so you know the minimum thing when you invite people is that when they leave they have everybody's contact information and they have the license to reach out to anybody and to to go where they want with them and and to um, come up with new things so so inviting people not just to um, participate but to propose to take over you know and so um, we'd love to hear uh, not just of people's interests but of their ideas and the things that they'd like to bring to the ocean memory project if that's if that's what they're if they're interested in that dialogue um, or that polylogue I love that finding uh, collaborators and eventual successors and to just keep this process moving and going thank you all thank you both so much for for joining me today and thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next month thanks for listening to this episode of the ocean decade show